You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Good morning, City Church. Thanks for being with us this morning. My name is Jake Axon. I'm the student's director here. And uh, if this is your first time joining us, we've been going through the book of Acts for, it feels like a long time. And uh, this morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 25. If you have a Bible, go to Acts chapter 25. Uh, And what we're going to see, I'm just going to preface this for you right now, Uh, Acts chapter 25, the entire chapter is what is called a narrative. Uh, Basically what we're seeing in Acts 25 is the legal processions playing out of the arrest and trial of Paul. And we're going to get a glimpse in this passage of why Paul is under attack, how God is sovereignly working through all of it, but I want to say this. When reading Acts chapter 25, it's very easy to feel like, oh great, another trial of Paul, another courtroom scene uh, in the book of Acts. Here we go. And I I think that we can grow bored or uninterested in what we're reading. And I just want to remind us and encourage us, every single ounce of God's word, every single ounce of the Bible is given to us by God for us to know him, love him, and understand him more. And so uh, as we're reading Acts 25, I really want to challenge us to press in and really try to see why has God given us this passage. Even if it just seems like a narrative, God wants us to have it. So why? I want us to dive into that. So we're going to start in verse 1. Three days after Festus arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, The chief priests and the leaders of the Jews presented their case against Paul to him, and they they appealed, asking for a favor against Paul, that Festus summon him to Jerusalem. So they want Festus to call Paul up to Jerusalem. They were, in fact, preparing an ambush along the road to kill him. Festus, however, answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea, and that he himself was about to go to Caesarea shortly. Therefore, he says, let those of you to the Jews who have authority go down with me and accuse Paul if he's done anything wrong. When they spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea. The next day, seated at the tribunal, he commanded Paul to be brought in. When he arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him and brought many serious charges, and I want you to see this, that they were not able to prove. Then Paul made his defense, neither against the Jewish law, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I sinned in any way. What we're seeing here is a very sketchy accusation against Paul, and through Paul's response, because we don't get the actual accusation, but through Paul's response, we can get an idea of what he might have been accused of doing. It seems as if they're claiming Paul has broken the Jewish law, sinned against the temple, and sinned against Caesar himself. These Jews hate Paul. They want him gone. They are trying everything to get rid of him. They're throwing the kitchen sink of accusations at Paul. But the text says they couldn't prove any of it. It was all hearsay. And we're going to see a little bit later what's actually behind the accusation uh, and what the Jews are really upset about. But let's keep reading so we can get there. Verse 9. 
But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, replied to Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem to be tried before me there on these charges? Now, it doesn't say that Festus knows about this uh, assassination plot for Paul. So we're assuming here he is genuinely just thinking, okay, the Jews want to bring him up to Jerusalem. So he's asking this. Verse 10, Paul says, I'm standing at Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I've done no wrong to the Jews, as even you yourself know very well. If then I did nothing wrong and I'm deserving of death, I am not trying to escape death. But if there is nothing to what these men accuse me of, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then after Festus conferred with his counsel, he replied, you've appealed to Caesar, so to Caesar you will go. Essentially saying, you want the whole ordeal? You want the whole Roman court procession? We're going to do that, okay? But what I want to point out about this is, is in verse 11, we get to see the posture, attitude, and courage of a person like Paul who understands one big idea about God. And it's the idea that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. That means in complete control over the outcomes, ends, and efforts of everything in the world. It's one thing to say that we know God is sovereign, especially when things are difficult. I know God's sovereign, he's got a plan. But it's another way to live like God is sovereign. I want you to know, Paul knows that no matter what happens to him, blessing or curse, suffering or joy, good or bad, it's not random. It's not random, but it's actually brought to him by God for a purpose. Paul says in verses 10 and 11, I don't think I've done anything wrong and I'm not deserving of death, but if I have and I am deserving of death, I'm not afraid of that. Paul openly says, I'm not scared of death. I'm not trying to avoid that. The gospel and Paul's understanding of God, I want you to see, has gripped him in such a way where he's no longer his own man. Paul sees himself not as his own, but as God's. And Paul knows that in this missionary working, that God's will is going to ultimately prevail. And if death is God's design for Paul in this moment, Paul has come to terms with that. He's become completely comfortable and so trusting in God that he knows whatever happens to him is God's will for him. And what we're going to see is this frees Paul up to live with a gospel courage unlike anything else in the world. God's sovereign power frees and fuels the courageous Christian heart. God's sovereign power frees and fuels the courageous Christian heart. God's sovereign control over life frees Paul up to write something like he writes in Philippians 1.20. This is my favorite verse in the whole Bible. Philippians 1.20, this is what Paul says. My eager expectation and hope. Okay, this is Paul's life. His eager expectation and hope for life is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. What this shows us is that Paul doesn't know if he's going to live or he's going to die, but what he does know is that God will have him either way. God will have him either way. 
what a comfort. I mean, what a comfort to know whatever this world throws at me, wherever I end up, I know I will never be one step outside of the bounds of God's design for me. What a comfort. And it's in this comfort of God's power, he writes the very next verse, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul says on trial, if I've done something wrong in my ministry that is deserving of death, it's a gain to me anyways. How many times, I mean, we've been, we're in Acts 25, how many times have we seen Paul step up in the face of governments, enemies, persecution, wicked men, uh, authorities and powers of, of Satan? How many times have we seen him step up and proclaim the goodness of Jesus and the gospel of, of Christ saving sinners, right? I want you to know Paul himself would say this, none of that is because he is a great man or because he himself has great boldness, but rather he has faith in a great God. There are no great men, there are no great women, there are people who have faith in a great God. Paul is no different than us. All of us have equal access to this God that Paul has. This is the fuel behind Paul's ministry, which gives him the boldness to proclaim Christ everywhere at all times. Let's keep reading. Several days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived in Caesarea. They're just adding characters to this story. Okay, try to remember all the names. Festus, King Agrippa, Bernice, Paul, the Jews. Okay, and they're paying a courtesy call on Festus since they were staying there several days. Festus presented Paul's case to the king. I really love this. Commentators say this was because Festus was actually a newer judge and he genuinely was like, help a brother out. I don't know what to do with this situation, right? Because it seems like Paul's innocent, but the Jews are very adamant. He's like, you're a wise king. Help me understand what's going on here. He says, this is what he tells uh, Bernice and King Agrippa. There's a man who was left as a prisoner by Felix. We talked about him last week. When I was in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews presented their case and asked that he be condemned. I answered them that it is not the Roman custom to give someone up before the accused faces the accusers and has an opportunity for a defense against the charges. It wouldn't be fair for him to just condemn Paul before Paul's had a chance to be in the room with his accusers, right? And has an opportunity for a defense against the charges. So when they had assembled here, I did not delay. The next day, I took my seat at the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought in. This blows my mind. Look at this. The accuser stood up and brought no charge against him of the evils I was expecting. I, I can't help but think this is funny. He's basically saying, with how much the Jews were going on about this Paul guy, with how serious they were about wanting to kill him and, and how angry they were and how much chaos was surrounding this trial, they go, I kind of thought you were gonna have more evidence. I kind of thought this was going to be a little better. Uh, and what, what, what he's saying is I, this was supposed to be a pretty bad guy, but none of the charges brought against Paul were anything that Festus was expecting. So what has Paul actually done? Okay, what has Paul actually done? We're about to hear a semblance, a one-sentence overview of the main accusation that they have brought before Paul. Here it is. Instead, 
they had some disagreements with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus, a dead man Paul claimed to be alive. I want to stop here. If you remember in verse 8, the things Paul says to defend himself. I haven't sinned against the Jews. I haven't sinned against the law. I haven't sinned against the temple. I haven't sinned against Caesar. And right here, we realize this isn't a law issue. This is not uh, because Paul has defied the law. This is not a Caesar issue. This is not a Roman Empire issue. This is a gospel issue. This is a gospel issue. The Jews have taken Paul to the highest court in the land because of what Paul believes about Jesus Christ. Simply because Paul believes and preaches that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he was crucified for sinners and rose from the dead. And while reading this, you might sit here and go, this is crazy that they would do this. And I'm here to warn you, it's much less crazy than you think. And it's going to become much more likely if our world continues in the direction that it's going. I feel necessary uh, to point this out. There are 100,000 things that Paul could have sweat about that this city was doing that he disagreed with. There are a hundred disputable things on a given day that Paul could go to bat with that the Jews were doing that was wrong, okay? Yet we see the issue that Paul is on trial here for and is going out on his shield for is nothing other than the issue of Christ crucified for sinners and risen from the dead as Lord and Savior. You see, Paul sees a city of sinful people disobeying God, far from God, walking in darkness, living in brokenness, and he simply preaches, Jesus, the man who died, has risen from the grave. The question this makes me ask is this. How does the resurrection of Christ speak to the wickedness and immorality of the world around us? How does the resurrection of Christ fix any of the problems that Paul is seeing in the city at the time? Why is that the message he's preaching? And then the second question is, how is the resurrection of Christ ultimately the hill that every Christian must die on? How is the resurrection the hill that every Christian must die on? The answer is very simple. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, Nothing else matters. If Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, then nothing matters. I'm going to say it one more time. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, nothing that takes place in the entire world matters. There's no point in anyone becoming a Christian no point in reading the Bible, no point in coming to church. In fact, there's no point in living morally at all. And Paul knows this. Christ must be seen as crucified for sinners and resurrected from the dead for the world to come to him. I want to point you to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is one of the only times Paul says this. 
He puts the word important in what he's saying. What is the most important thing Paul could preach? 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3. For I passed on to you as most important what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This message is what has gotten Paul arrested and put on trial. Look what else he says in the passage. Verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. As in if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, he didn't pay for sin. Okay? Those who have fallen asleep in Christ, as in those who have died, they're just dead. They're just dead. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, meaning if we have merely trusted in Christ, changed our whole lives, followed this Jesus who never resurrected, meaning there's no afterlife, uh, everything uh, about Christianity was to do with this life only, Paul says this, we should be pitied more than anyone. Because if Christ didn't rise from the grave, we're wasting our time. And finally, he says this, verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? I face death every day, as surely as I may boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus as a mere man, what good did that do me? Meaning, I have been persecuted my entire Christian life. What good did that do me if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. He's saying if Christ didn't rise from the dead, nothing matters. Eat, drink, sleep with whoever you want, live however you want, because tomorrow we die. No one should become a Christian. No one should deny themselves and turn from their desires if Jesus didn't rise from the grave. Because if he didn't rise from the grave, then nothing he said is true. Nothing he said can be counted on. It's all just morals. But if he did, I want you to see this. If he did rise from the grave, then everything, everything, everything in your life matters Everything in the universe matters. Sin then is actually deadly. How we live truly matters. That means we actually are in rebellion against our creator and Jesus Christ, if he rose, really is the only way to be saved. There is no neutrality on the resurrection. I hope that you're beginning to see Jesus either rose or he didn't. And what we determine from this moment in history will have infinite ramifications for your life. He either rose or he did not. And based on those two, everything about your life needs to change. The reason why Paul preaches Christ crucified, died, and risen is because the world needs to know with absolute certainty that Jesus is God. They need to know that this man, this Jewish man who lived 2,000 years ago was not just a good teacher. He was not just a moral guy. He really is the God of the universe infinitely condensed into the body of a man who died for us and rose from the grave showing everything he said is true. The world doesn't just need to get better. 
The world doesn't just need to become more moral. And I think we look at our world, we see the wickedness of it, the promiscuity of our culture, the murderous nature of abortion, the distortion of God's design for men and women. Morality is in a crisis right now. And we think this world just needs to get better. The reality is this, Paul knows he might be able to turn this city into a whole bunch of law-abiding, good people who maybe they go to church, maybe they don't cuss, maybe they don't get drunk, maybe they don't abort their babies, but if they don't know Jesus is Lord, Paul might have succeeded in making some better morals, but he's ultimately failed. This is a hard pill for us to swallow. There will be millions and millions of people in hell who never cussed, never drank, never cheated on their wife, never killed anyone. They were really good people. And they will be in hell because being a good person isn't what saves someone. Having Christian morals isn't what saves someone. Our world doesn't need merely a better morality. They need to know that Jesus is God over everything, risen from the dead for our salvation. That is the battlefield. That is the hill that we die on. And I want you to know, Paul's not setting out to be controversial. He didn't go out going, I really hope I get arrested He's not setting out to be a, a, a ruffling feathers. He's setting out to be faithful to the gospel. And what we're going to see is that when we live faithfully for the gospel, it will invite persecution and it will ruffle feathers. The reason Paul finds himself on trial is not because he's preaching morals, but because he is preaching Christ crucified for sin and resurrected as Lord. And because of that, Everything that this culture is doing matters. And he's calling them out of the darkness into the light. But what is so awesome about this is that when people actually see Christ as Lord, everything that we want them to morally adhere to in the scriptures comes through discipleship and sanctification. Here's what I mean. Christ is not only the savior and redeemer of our world, he is the completer of the shortcomings of our world. I'm gonna say that again. Christ is not only the savior and redeemer of our world, he is the completer of the shortcomings of our world. Every issue in our world, Christ is the completer of. Here's what I mean. The eternal fix for racism and sexism and anything that views another human as less than, than human is erased when we see Christ as Lord, because at the foot of the cross, we see that the ground is level. Everyone stands before God on the same plane. The eternal fix for abortion and for murder is seeing Christ as Lord, because when we do, we will understand that him being Lord and God actually means that children are not money pits and they're not burdens, People are not expendable for our convenience, but people are blessings and image bearers of God made by God for God's glory. The eternal fix for a distorted uh, sexuality and gender beliefs is seeing Christ as Lord because when we do, we will see that the design for men and women and the design for our bodies uh, together is actually meant to echo and point to 
the love that Jesus has for the church and the love that God has for his people. I'm a youth pastor and I am saying this, it is not cliche when people say that Jesus is the answer. Some church answers are acceptable and that's one of them. Jesus is the completer of our broken world. If we merely attack the moral issues of the day, we might make some more moral people, but if we just make a more moral Tallahassee that doesn't know Jesus, we have failed. Every broken thing will find its fixing in Christ. Every broken, I mean, think about the brokenness in your life. Where is the brokenness in your life? One day, Christ is going to bring all of that brokenness back into wholeness. Every broken thing will find its fixing in Christ. That ought to make you encouraged this morning. This brokenness you're feeling, if you are in Christ, is not permanent. It will be made new. Paul stands before a broken world with one message. Jesus Christ died for sinners. And he rose victoriously, proving that everything he said is true. The reason why it matters that Jesus rose from the dead is because he said he was going to. And when he did, we go, okay. Dean says this all the time. I don't know about you, but I'm going to go with the guy who died and then rose from the grave three days later. That's like his go-to phrase. And the reality is he's, he's right, okay? Jesus Christ rising from the gra- grave means everything that he said is true, means we should bank our lives on what he says. And what he says is that we've sinned and fallen short of God's glory and only through him dying on the cross in our place can we be reconciled. It matters if Jesus rose from the grave. So it's him that we must preach. And the hard truth that many Americans are gonna need to realize is that the answer to fixing this country and fixing this culture and stopping the chaos around us is not going to come through the way that our grandparents thought it would by merely voting Republican. It's gonna take everyday Christians, everywhere they are, being everyday faithful to letting the loudest message echoing from their lives not be one of mere morals, but one of Jesus Christ is God, crucified and risen. And because of that, everything changes. And this will come with persecution. We see it. It happens in Paul's day. It's going to happen in ours. This is really hard. We want the world to know Jesus. We, we, we don't just want the world to be more moral. We, we do want that. But we want the world to know its maker. We want the world to know Jesus. To know that sin is serious and it's separated us from God. And that because of that sin, it's no small deal. We deserve hell forever for our sins, but God's son has come to die in our place. He wears our sin and our wickedness for our forgiveness to rescue us. And he has risen from the grave victorious over death, having defeated sin, and he extends his hand, offering eternal life to any who will come to him. And all the more that we preach this, all the more are we persecuted. It's heartbreaking. I mean, I'm sure many of you know people that you desperately want to believe this. 
Everybody probably has someone in mind. I want this person in my family. I want this person at my work to believe this. I want this person in my life to believe this. And I'm here to say, just keep preaching it. Keep preaching it. What they need to hear more than anything is that there is a God and we've sinned against him and he has come to the earth to reconcile us to him. Keep preaching it. If someone had stopped preaching that to me, if someone had said, man, Jake is just, I've preached the gospel to him a hundred times, he's never gonna get it, I would not be here today. Do not stop sharing this news with the people in your life that need to hear this news. This is the greatest news in history. I, I don't, there is no better announcement. I don't know how else to say this. There will, be, there will never be anything in the history of the world that is better than the news that Jesus Christ is alive because that means we can be saved. Like we really can be saved from the greatest mistake we've ever made and it's none of our doing, it's all God's love for us doing it. We can be saved because Jesus lives. And because he is Lord risen from the dead, everything changes. Our morality, our desires, our hopes, our plans, our lives, our eternity, everything changes. So what do we learn from Acts 25? What appears as a mere narrative about Paul's trial with Festus and the Jews actually gives us a glimpse into the life Paul was living the reason he was being accused and what he prioritized as the main sermon of his mission, the message of Jesus Christ crucified and risen. And at the end of Acts 25, the grand procession of the court plays out. Bernice and Agrippa come in and it says they come in with great pomp. It's a very, it's a very pageantry uh, experience. It's very royal and, 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 and actually a Greece and Bernippus and Festus sit before Paul as Paul gives his account that Festus is going to write down so that he actually has evidence of the court playing out and he has something to write about Paul in this case. And what I love is that not only do we see God's sovereignty protecting Paul on the not going to Jerusalem to be assassinated, but we also see that every single chance Paul gets, he's preaching the gospel. The highlight of this moment, the highlight of this passage is the idea that Jesus died and rose. This is about Paul being accused of breaking the Jewish law, uh, breaking the temple law, and sinning against Caesar. And Paul says, it's about Jesus Christ and him risen from the grave. Paul's preaching the gospel at every turn. And Acts 26 uh, is actually going to be the full defense. This is mainly a prequel sermon, if you will. Next week we're going to be in Acts 26, which is the main presentation, but just to close, man, I just want to say this on Acts 25. When we trust, like we saw at the beginning, that God is sovereign, meaning in control over everything in the world, and he's faithful, and he's good, the more we get a glimpse of that, the more bold we will be to share him, his truth, his goodness, and many will come to know them, and even if there is pushback, the pushback is worth it. Jesus was not ashamed to bear our filth and our sin and our guilt on the cross. Let us not be ashamed to bear our perfect Savior in our lives. We're going to celebrate uh, now and reflect 
on this through the taking of the Lord's Supper. I'm gonna invite Lance Beecham up and he's gonna lead us in the Lord's Supper, guys. What we're doing uh, with this is we are proclaiming Jesus Christ uh, died and risen. We are doing what we just talked about. So I'm gonna hand it over to Lance.